Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 221 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center, the University of Texas. It's Monday night, June 27th, 2022. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. You are way too happy. Well, it's been a long day of, of beaming. <laughs> um, fair enough. And here we are talking on our podcast, so I guess it could be worse. Exactly. When you said, hey, let's uh, let's close the night out by, by meeting up for a recording, I thought, you know what? That's <laughs> the best thing I will do all day. Count and, and no Mets game to distract us. Exactly. What those? So I feel like we should apologize up front for the immediate baseball talk, but here it comes. Go Mets, go! It's I mean, as long as as long as the Mets are in first place, you know, dear listeners, sorry. So those those people from Atlanta are creeping in bit by bit. They, I think, as of this morning, it was what four and a half games back. They're having a, they're having a heck of a month, but it's not enough yet. Um, I think they're back. I think they lost today, so I think it's back to five, as it should be. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, well, the fact that the Mets are pulling this off without you know not one but two of of the greatest currently active you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's nice to it's it's nice it's it's nice to be on pace for 102 wins and know that you have two you know Cy Young caliber pitchers who you know are about to come back from rehab. So yeah, yeah, wow, fantastic. I mean, right, given well, given the given the utter despair in which I am currently living in every other respect of my outside the home life, the Mets are at least something. So paint it, so Steve. You're you're uh, among you're you're if not the most sort of. Uh, visible legal <laughs> academic on in general on Supreme Court coverage you're certainly up in that that mix um I have to assume that since Dobbs uh you're since I mean since uh, Bruin since, well yeah, since, yeah that's true right we've yeah. entered this sort of this is the end game period yes uh, so I I was hoping you could actually just kind of share a little bit about like what's it been like from your point of view in terms of so many people reaching out to you on all platforms asking you to to weigh in on stuff I mean, what what has that been like? Uh, soul crushing. Um, so, I mean, you know, we had, I mean, last week was busy, right? We had the major Carson versus Making Case Tuesday. We had Bruin Thursday. We had Dobbs Friday. I was actually at the Aspen Ideas Festival when when oh, Dobbs oh, came yeah. down. Well, um, so take us into the room. Like, were you on stage <laughs> literally, or just no? Like, no, I was. I, I, was I was. I was. Aspen Ideas. It's like yeah. it's like the Davos type scene, and there's you. <laughs> I, so, did you have Chardonnay in your left hand or your right hand when this happened? I was sitting in my hotel room, uh, <laughs> on, you know, on the CNN all hands conference call, hitting refresh on my laptop when at ten or at eight ten Mountain Time, you know, up pops Dobbs on the screen, and wow. as soon as I saw it was Alito, I was like. Well, there we go. There it is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I don't. Folks can sort of look at my Twitter for substance. I know, you know, this is this is not a constitutional law or Supreme Court podcast. I will just say that I think um, I am hard pressed to think of two decisions, Bobby, in our lifetime, let alone one, um, that generated such immediate, intense public interest. I mean, the the closest thing I can think of is Obergefell. Um, with gay marriage in 2015, but like, you know, I think the one, I think that was less shocking to a lot of people. And two, I think it was sort of the end of the story, whereas both Bruin and Dobbs are actually decisions that will only precipitate a whole lot of new legal complexes and complications. So it was just, it was, it was stunning Bobby in so many different ways. And, you know, I'm still sort of digging out from the the email well, backlog. And of course, part of what's you know fascinating and and is going, as you say, is going to spur intense uh, scrutiny of what comes next. You, you mentioned Obergefell, and there there are any number of cases, and maybe Obergefell's among them, where people wonder now. So something that, as you just described it, as okay, so that was that, and that was the end of it. I know your point was that it wasn't. It, there's nothing about a Burgerfell that suggested it was going to be immediately generative of the next wave of follow-on con law questions. Although there That's was right. some of that, but but that wasn't like a major point of public discourse. No. Whereas whereas here, um, there is exactly that both both for Broom, but especially in, in a broader sense for Dobbs. This question: of What does this mean for other aspects that are linked to substantive due process? What what is the what is the trajectory for substantive due process, That's including right. things that have been on the books for a long time. Well, especially when you have the concurring opinions, like, you know, reaching radically different views about that, right? I mean, so... Right. I mean, the, yeah, there, right. there are people, it's clear the justices themselves are 
right. paying close attention to that in putting down their markers. But I mean, I, 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 so I think I think you're right that one bucket of questions is what happens next for other rights. I, I will just say that I think there are two other buckets. I mean, one is what happens next for you know people seeking abortion access, and you know that's something that's changing by the minute, right? I mean, you've got a bunch of states with trigger laws, you've got a bunch of states with so-called zombie laws. Um, but you also have, I think, Bobby, the question of, you know, what are those states going to do next? Like, are states really going to try to ban travel out of state, which will raise novel questions about the right to travel? Um, are states going to try to ban, for example, the shipping of mifepristone into states? Right. I mean, like, I think I think there's just the, the universe of legal questions before we even leave the question of reproductive right. rights. That's right. And that's, without, that's without, you know, so. I, I think on a prior episode, we talked about that right to travel question. I, I suspect here's a point of agreement for us. Uh, I don't think it could possibly, well, let me rephrase it. It certainly shouldn't be constitutional for a state to de facto export its own choices about criminal law in a way that binds other states uh, by, by, making, by criminalizing the act of traveling out of the state to do something outside the state that's legal where it would then be done. Um, do you think? Do you think that under at least current doctrine, that's actually a closer question than I'm suggesting? Yes, mostly because it hasn't come up a lot, right? I mean, like you know, I, so let me say I agree with you that my understanding of the right to travel, even before recent years, has always encompassed that, right? That that once you leave the borders of the state, there's some liberty to sort of not be bound by the laws of the state. Um, my concern is sort of twofold, and one gets to the sort of the larger thing I want to say before we actually go back to our bread and butter. So my, the first concern is just that I think that there are courts who will be hostile to that kind of a right for many of the same reasons that the majority in Dobbs was hostile to the right to a pre-viability abortion, um, namely that it doesn't have um, either a textual hook in the Constitution or a really strong historical tradition. I mean, you know, the... The best argument about the source of the right to travel is the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. And you know as well as I that that's a clause that has not exactly had a rich life. Um, it's supposed to be good for one thing, according to, was it, well, was it Justice, yeah. uh, Justice Miller? Justice Samuel Miller. Miller. Yeah. Well, Miller says you can go to the seaports, you can go to the post office, right. you can get the help of the diplomats when you're captured. Right. So the, right. the irony is that the affirmative holding of the slaughterhouse cases might actually finally come right. into use. Wouldn't that be something if we got a slaughterhouse? <laughs> that, that was... But but so but the other but so the other point the, the, the last thing I want to say and, and I don't I don't expect you to weigh in on it, let alone agree on it. But the last thing I'll just say is, um, you know, I'm someone who watches the court, obviously very carefully, who practices before the court, who, you know, I think folks might not agree that not, not might not believe me when I say this, but I'll say it anyway, who cares deeply about the court as an institution. Oh, you and, and I think, and I, and I just, I think that the, it's not just the decision in Dobbs, it's the decision in Dobbs on top of the decision in Bruin, on top of the decisions in Carson and today in Kennedy, the football coach case, on top of everything else that's going on. Like I just, I worry about a universe in which at least some of the justices seem completely disinterested in growing charges from the other side, growing criticisms that they are acting in a purely partisan political manner. Um, I know they don't think they are, and I respect that they don't think they are, but like, it seems like I don't know what we do for the long-term health of the institution if one, half of the country thinks that it's, you know, acting in a manner that's not reflecting how judges should act and two the justices don't care and, and I, I just i don't know what to do with that i don't know how we teach that to our students i don't know where we go with that how analogous do you think that dynamic is to the 1930s in the roosevelt yeah. so i think it's i think it is very so I, I was thinking about this a lot today um i think the moment we are in looks a lot like 1936 mm -hmm. in one respect, which is a court that, at least from my perspective, is moving in a way that is not obviously the direction that a majority of the country wants it to move in. There's one critical difference, which is, I mean, as you know, as well as anybody, you know, the election of 1936 was a referendum on the court. Um, right, FDR basically ran against the court. He didn't run against, I don't even remember who the Republican nominee was in 36. And 
and he won in the sense that like the American people returned you know, super majorities of Democrats, not just Roosevelt, but like to the House and the Senate, so that he could then turn around and basically hold a gun to the court's head. And to me, Bobby, the politics of the, the so even if the court is in a similar place vis-a-vis the American polity, the politics that allowed us to come down from that, the politics of de-escalation, I guess, um, or escalation, whatever, whichever direction you come yeah. from, the, the politics that made that moment transitory, I don't see how That's we right. get to that here. Right, because I'm not sure it's quite right to say it, it's compared to the uh, the relative lopsidedness. And there was always a lot of vehement opinion going the other way, but it was pretty lopsided in that election. Yeah. Um, I don't think the country going into the midterms will reflect a similar lopsidedness. Or no. Who knows, though? No, you never know. You, one thing that's really interesting to ask now is what will be the galvanizing political effect yeah. on the left from this? It could, it could be quite transformative, so maybe we'll see. But I, I think your instinct is right that we don't have – we neither have the relatively clear tilt in the general voting population, nor do we have the exigent circumstances of the Depression as a as a – nationwide driver that was that was that was uh, how how am I trying to express this I guess what I'm trying to say is with the depression continuing to chug along the particular dimension along which Roosevelt was pushing really went with the grain of the structural economic forces that were affecting most everybody yeah. and here and it's the more court, and the court looked and the court appeared to be the sort of the cog in the in the, the, right, the obstacle yeah whereas here um, it's it's not about even similarly relatively evenly distributed things. Rather, it's sure. cultural. These are cultural disputes that are that people feel much more, I guess, more evenly divided on, or at least in in terms of who's turning out to vote and and how our system actually magnifies opinions amongst those who have. Well, and, and I mean, I mean, there's a longer conversation here about how. You know, in '36, it was the general election that mattered a lot more than the primaries, and now it's the primaries that matter so much more exactly. than the general. That's what I'm getting at with the magnifying. Yeah. Yeah. No, and the, and the polarizing effects. Yeah. And so, sure. exactly. so, so, so I think that I mean I think you're absolutely right that '36 is the best possible analogy. I just think the politics on the on the electoral side are so radically different. Yeah, that means I think that means we're in for a really bumpy road. I mean, yes. there's a, there's a counter history of. The, by the way, for listeners who are familiar with the allusions to 1936 and 1937 in Supreme Court history, we're talking about this long period in which the court was uh, relatively activist in striking down yes. both acts of federal legislation that the court said were beyond federal legislative power, sort of a federalism objection, and striking down some state court legislation on the grounds of, ironically, uh, substantive due process. And there was a, a big push against this, including a lot of talk of reforming the court to more quickly change the votes. Famously, in 1937, there was a little bit of internal realignment on the court, uh, thanks to Owen Roberts in particular. And b- by that time- The anyway, switch in time that saved the nine. Which, of course, uh, you know, Owen Roberts always said, like, I'd, I'd already decided. In any event, it kind of mooted things. And in, and in very short order, Roosevelt, who's, who's on there forever, uh, on the, in the White House forever, is, ends up having all his picks on the court, anyways, and so it kind of it kind of mooted the co- the constitutional crisis got kind of close, and then it just whoosh, World War II comes along, all of it gets swept away. Uh, yeah, but I, I mean, by nineteen forty one, right? Every justice had been appointed by FDR, and pretty soon you got cases like Wickard, and it's like you yep. know the idea that just six seven years earlier the court had been disposed as Five, it was. Five, yeah, hard yeah. to believe. So I don't. Th- I think what we're agreeing on here is I don't think we're going to get off that easy if. By which I mean, I don't think this whole thing will unwind and the tension in our politics is going to go elsewhere. It's going to stay on the court and it's going to stay tense for, looks like, quite some time to come. Well, and I'll just say, and this is this is more a, a, a bit of a snide editorial comment, but um, I think this is a court in a hurry. And and I think a court in a hurry, you know, is only going to further exacerbate that those those structural problems in ways that weren't necessarily true in 36 and 37. The uh, I wonder if it matters too that we're talking about going into a midterm, which I think has less from an Ackermanian perspective has less settlement power, less right. uh, resolution power, of course, than a presidential election. Yeah. Anyway, right. so so this is after all the, the national security law podcast. Although, I mean, right. I, I mean, listen, I, I I will I will I will die on the hill that the institutional you, you know sort of legitimacy of the Supreme Court is a national security issue, but I. 
I think you and I agree that the stability of the institutions writ large over time is a core national security interest. Yes. Uh, so there we it, go. I, we so talked about, I, yes. If, well, if that, I will say we, we have spent more time on less related topics. I will say, I will well, say that. that's for sure. <laughs> Even without broaching the frivolity topics. Uh, all, right, all right. So well, you, you want you want to start you want to start our, our our bread and butter tonight uh, halfway across the world in Russia. Absolutely. So we, here's a quick run of show for y'all um, at the 16 minute mark. Let's get good into job. Um, I've heard worse, and at least there's no Casper mattress ads here, huh? Although I got nothing to Casper mattress. I have no idea if they're good or not. They haven't offered us one eight hundred cars for kids. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> all right, we want to talk about um, Russian. Yeah, prosecutions of captured foreign fighters, including Americans, uh, a denial of combat immunity for those folks. And we want to talk about that. We want to contrast and compare it to U.S. post 9-11 uh, legal policy positions relating to, say, uh, you know, alleged al-Qaeda and, and Taliban or members of the Taliban. And then we want to pivot from there into the, uh, the Gitmo plea agreement uh, from Abdel Hadi al-Iraqi. And uh, we'll also talk about the uh, the Gitmo transfer in the Ghoul case. We'll pivot over to the uh, remarkable news, perhaps, that the United States seems to have participated in a raid that uh, wasn't a, it wasn't a lethal strike. It was a capture operation in Syria, capturing an Islamic State uh, alleged senior figure. Uh, who's got Who's got that guy now? Where is he in custody? What is the legal framework? We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. And in the same vein, we'll, we'll swing over to the Sahel, where not the United States, uh, not the United States Guat, but the French Leguat is underway and picking up steam, it seems, with news of a French, uh, possibly an airstrike for sure, maybe drone strike, um, killing some 40 people. We'll talk about this and, and maybe pose the question, why in the world does, why isn't the world, you know, media focused on what the French are doing? If the United States did this, it would be front page news. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk about what happened to Steve, one of your cases, Donzinger, and then you know, we'll get into some frivolity. Maybe sad, some sad trombone. Womp, womp. <laughs> although, although sad trombone with a good descent. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you, yeah, you've got some reason for optimism there perhaps. Yeah, right. optimism, I don't know. It's just something. So let's talk about the Russians are up to you. Rus- Russia's uh, press secretary. They're up, to no, they're up to no good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that could not be more true, it seems. Okay, so it is no surprise. First of all, let's state what may be obvious but needs to be reminded. The Russians clearly don't give a fig, no matter what may be said elsewhere, they don't actually give a fig for uh, international law of war or UN charter constraints or otherwise, as witnessed by, say, the successive invasions of Ukraine. Uh, so let's not, let's not lose sight of that threshold uh, thing. And then second, let's note that this is hardly the first time that they have brought forth the machinery of prosecution for war captives in circumstances that, in, including some captured Ukrainian sailors, as I recall, during the original 2014 invasion, they, they have denied combatant immunity improperly repeatedly. And, and that's really kind of a stunning thing for those of us who labor in the vineyards of the legal history of the laws of war with an emphasis on detention. I mean, one of the, one of the great civilizational achievements, uh, no matter how often dishonored by breach, nonetheless, one of the great civilizational achievements was this idea that uh, in armed conflict, that those who are fighting for the other state party, uh, unless they have you know, fought out in uniform or otherwise done something to waive the erstwhile privilege. Uh, if they've been fighting in compliance with the laws of war, you shouldn't bring the machinery of prosecution to bear upon them, precisely because it might result in a death penalty or life sentences or otherwise. Instead, you should simply hold them for the duration of hostilities, no more, no less. Um, so the Russians have been looking for ways to get at prosecutions that are that are I, I would argue in contravention of this rule in some cases with clearly Ukrainian personnel. The more interesting thing, though, is that there are non-Ukrainians, uh, famously and, and I think courageously, fighting for alongside Ukraine against the Russians. Uh, and we've had some British captives, uh, I think a Moroccan, and now word of at least two, possibly three Americans 
Russia's press secretary in an, in an English language interview was asked about this. Don't these people deserve, uh, aren't they POWs, uh, immune from prosecution unless you're claiming that they did something war crime like uh, attacking a civilian. In other words, you can't prosecute them for shooting at Russian soldiers. And this guy said, uh, basically, no, uh, quote, they are not part of the Ukrainian army. They're not subject to the Geneva Convention. Um the claim appears to be a claim that these are mercenaries. Now, this is this is where it starts getting interesting from a law of armed conflict perspective. Uh, additional protocol one, and and also the uh, sort of summary of the laws of war that the Red Cross put together in its sort of IHL database, you might call it, um, talks about the principle that a mercenary as defined in additional protocol one, um, does not get prisoner of war status, doesn't get combatant immunity for prosecution. Um, you, you don't get to skip a trial, but you can have a trial and you can prosecute them for war-related actions. Um, here's how additional protocol one defines a mercenary. A person who's specially recruited locally or abroad to fight in a war or armed conflict, they do in fact do that. They directly take part in hostilities. They're motivated to take part in hostilities essentially by the desire for private gain. And in fact, is promised by or on behalf of a party to the conflict, material compensation substantially in excess of that promised or paid to combatants of similar ranks and functions in the armed forces of that party. It is neither a national of the party to the conflict nor a resident of the territory, not a member of the armed forces of the party to the conflict. It hasn't been sent by a state, blah, 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 blah. So where are the weak spots in this when the Russians apply this principle that mercenaries don't get the benefits of combatant immunity, the weak spots would seem to be one. I'd want to know first and foremost, uh, are, are these non-Ukrainian fighters being paid by the Ukrainians? Uh, and what's the phrase here? Substantially in excess of what the Ukrainians of similar rank and functions get. Uh, if so, that then that does satisfy that that figure. But if if not, then forget it. You you can't deny them combatant immunity. Um, I'd like to know the nationality. These folks do any of them have dual national status? Uh, what about their residency? Are any of them Ukrainian residents? I think in the British case, uh, there are some claims about both those points that might make the Russian actions inappropriate. Um, and then there's this idea that all of this is besides the point if the Ukrainians have made these people members of their armed forces, which raises a fact question about exactly what is their status. Um, and I don't claim to know the factual circumstances. And I guess, Steve, where that leads me is it certainly is possible that actually the Russians have a, have a basis in some of these cases if there is someone who's being paid who's not in the Ukrainian armed forces, who's not a territorial resident or a citizen, and whose pay is out of proportion to what a Ukrainian soldier of same rank would get, um, that could make someone a mercenary that actually triggers this rule. But I should note, um, it's not even clear, the, I don't think the United States accepts this rule, but it's possible the Russians do. Um, but they should at least be held to that standard. And there ought to be a, a credible testing of those elements. And my loose, loose, loose understanding is that whatever trials have occurred or are going to occur, aren't even going to touch any of those issues, that there is no, there's no proceeding about them, that instead it's just sort of a, you know, did you, or did you not have a gun? Did you, or did you not fire at this Russian column, et cetera? And it seems to be skipping that critical step. Um, Steve, how do you feel this compares and contrasts with the U.S. position, most famously associated with military commissions at Guantanamo, but generally applicable in the post-11 period where we have taken a lot of positions about the boundaries of the combatants' privilege yeah. and connection with al-Qaeda and, and Taliban uh, detainees. I, mean, I will say I think our positions, but our position, which, as you know, I have not always agreed with, has been a hell of a lot more nuanced. Um you know, I think we've talked at some length about the Hamadullin case in the Fourth Circuit, especially, which I think was the, to me, Bobby, the sort of the, the richest of the cases where this was really at issue, um, where Hamadullin was tried for civilian um, sort of terrorism and terrorist-related crimes, and he argued that it was just because he was it was while he was fighting for the Taliban, right, in Afghanistan during you know a, a conflict recognized by the laws of war. Um, I don't want to sort of rehash that whole argument. I, I thought the U.S. position ran into some difficulties in that case, but even that was so much more, I think, 
protective of the privilege and reflective that the privilege is a thing than what Russia is doing. Yeah, you'll notice that, it, as far as I've seen, at least, the Russians are not maintaining a claim that the units um, to which these various captives were associated are themselves fighting in violation of the law of war. That was always a central part of the U.S. position. And, and by the way, quite rightly so. I, I don't think anyone actually in the Taliban would deny that they were not interested in compliance with what they perceived as the alien law of the, the law of armed conflict. And, and certainly no one in Al-Qaeda could possibly make such a claim. So there, there's that difference. There's also the questions about whether you're even talking about international armed conflict in at least some of the, the Guantanamo-related cases, whereas this obviously is a international armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Um, so I see them as, as pretty distinguishable. And, and so we've got actually this, so, so watch this space. It's, it, I know this is relatively small in the grand scheme of, of Russian violations of the law of war, especially with their seeming disregard of proportionality and distinction principles in, in sort of the lethal force context. But, but, but the, the yet more cavalier law breaking by the Russians is, is something worth noting. Now, um, we were just talking about Guantanamo. We were just talking about people charged by the Americans with war crimes there. Uh, Abd al-Hadi al-Iraqi um, was, as I recall it, um, charged based on his actions as an alleged uh, commanding officer for uh, forces fighting against both coalition forces and Afghan government forces and U.S. forces, and even even involved, even allegedly involved in the destruction of the Bamiyan Valley uh, Buddhist statues, which people will recall if they're old enough from early on in the Taliban's uh, um, years in uh, in the field previously. And so there's now a deal in place. And in the Biden administration, let's be clear, this isn't some big surprise. The Biden administration made clear that it wasn't trying to walk away from and unwind the MILCOM proceedings as such. It was going to pursue plea agreements. And this is the, I think this is the first one, Steve. Uh, yep. The deal was reached in May. It was revealed, you know, a week or so ago. And it, the details are a little uh, sparse at this point, but it sounds like the deal is, He'll plead guilty, and then the machinery will be put in motion to get him transferred to, out of Guantanamo to somewhere else. He's got serious spinal injuries or, or difficulties, has had a lot of surgeries, I think at least five surgeries at Gitmo. Um, it looks like everyone's trying to move him out to some other place, and this is the pathway that's going to pave the way for it. Does that sound right to you? Yes, I think it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've talked before about whether – you know, plea deals are going to be the way, or at least one of the ways that the government extricates itself from at least some of the military commissions. You know, I remain to be sort of convinced that that's going to get most of the way there, but at least this seems to be a step. Yeah. Some of the coverage said, you know, the Biden administration reportedly is trying to work out plea deals in the 9-11 cases themselves. That's a, that's a totally different kettle of fish. There's no, there's no larger politics to the, to the uh, Al-Hadi case. But the 9-11 case is obviously totally different in that respect. Um, uh, anyway, I guess, I mean, we'll just have to see, you know, what happens. But I think this is, to me, a positive development. And, you know, it takes at least one of those pending military commission cases off the table. So that's an unusual it, – it, any progress in the military commissions is unusual. So we, we might as well talk about it. It's a little nibble out of the seven-layer dip. Seriously. Um, all right. Speaking of Gitmo, we also had this interesting – transfer of a case you and I had talked about actually last fall. That's right. So uh, this is one where the – this is, I think, a foregone conclusion that something like this had to happen because you have uh, an Afghan national. Is, is that right, Steve? An Afghan yep. national yep. Uh, whose basis for detention was his involvement with the Taliban. We have in, in both practical senses and in more uh, de jure senses – indicated that we're no longer engaged in armed conflict in Afghanistan against the Taliban. And so the basis for detention, as we were saying earlier, if you're, if you're holding someone under color of the law of armed conflict for the duration of hostilities, that does in fact come with a terminal point. When those hostilities are over, there's some indeterminate wind-up period, yes. But uh, so this has been wound up, I guess, is the summary. Yep. Anything further um, to say about that? Just that, you know, we had talked, I mean, you, if you remember from the fall, right, this was the case where Judge Mehta had granted the habeas petition but denied the motion for immediate release. Right. And so we had thought that there was a, at least a, a small possibility that this would re-trigger the Kiemba question, right, about whether detainees who have received grants of habeas relief have some kind of judicial remedy if the government doesn't actually effectuate that release. 
Um, and this obviously moots that concern in this case. And, you know, I don't, I don't blame Google's attorneys for pressing and trying to get judicial involvement and trying to keep the heat turned up as much as possible on the State Department and the Pentagon and the IC, all for, you know, facilitating this, et cetera. That's their job as zealous advocates for their client. Um, but I think the, the end result here, the eventual success of the transfer, is the sort of thing that is exactly why courts uh, going forward in the future are going to be very reluctant, just as they have been in the past, very reluctant to actually intervene. They'll ask for status reports, perhaps. They might lean in. They might wag fingers. Um, but to actually take stronger action, it hasn't happened before, and it's probably not likely to happen. Yep. Those future holds. Okay. Um, so when we talk global war on terrorism, uh, there's a certain sense in which on the show over the years, we've come to view it all as a bunch of legacy activity, especially since the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the, the, the dramatic quieting of the U.S. role in the, the Iraq-Syria theater against the Islamic State. Um, but little, little things still flow up there. We're, we're still there. The Islamic State is certainly still there. And uh, there was a remarkable story about 10 days ago, a pre-dawn helicopter raid in Syria um, somebody on board those helicopters swooped in, kicks in doors, and they successfully capture Hani Ahmed al-Kurdi, a relatively, relatively well-known and senior Islamic State member, former bomb maker, now said to be involved in the operational planning of Islamic State attacks. So fantastic job. They, they found him. They got him. It sounds like it was actually a clean op that uh, doesn't sound like there ended up being any armed resistance. Yeah. Uh, so, so far, so good. The interesting question from a legal perspective is like, well, factually, so who's got this guy? I, I have to assume, Steve, whoever has the, the de jure custody of this guy, it's not the United States. He's either in uh, Syrian defense, uh, SDF custody, or maybe Iraqi custody. I think those are basically the two options. Do you, do you think it's one or the other? Or do you think it might be somebody else? <sighs> Who else is there? Right. I mean, it's, I don't think there's any chance it's us, but I also think this nicely illustrates the artificiality of these sorts of things. Um, it sounds like it was definitely an American administered raid. It's hard to imagine it wasn't U.S. special operators who effectively conducted the raid, albeit with coalition partners and SDF partners, maybe Iraqi partners mm -hmm. uh, along, along with them. It's, if I had to bet, I'd say that surely the guy is in, you know, some sort of partner entity controlled, formally controlled facility where we have access to him, but he's not in our custody. And I strongly assume that there will be no Gitmo habeas, Gitmo style habeas litigation. Uh, no, no uh, Doe v. Mattis for longtime listeners. Hey, Doe v. Mattis reference. No Doe v. Mattis type uh, litigation. And in part because the guy has no U.S. ties other than his current situation. Um, not said to be a U.S. citizen or anything like that. So in effect, the, the U.S. legal system won't engage in any way. And I think that is sort of an, another reminder that the, the overall lesson learned by the executive branch about detention is don't administer it ourselves and work by, with, and through partner nations and partner entities uh, insofar as there is to be detention at all. And, you know, it's always, an, always worth pausing to ask, from, from the perspective of both the rights or the, the, the circumstances of the detainee, never mind the rights, just the, the treatment circumstances and the intelligence interests of the United States, you know, is, is either better off this way? I would argue that probably not, but that this is exactly what you would predict would come from the way that, you know, 10 years of post 9-11 experience unfolded. So, uh, yeah, I don't think we'll ever hear more about this one. I bet we never hear another word. Um, <laughs> which is alarming unto itself. But that's exactly my point. <laughs> oh man! Just like just like the uh, just like the ongoing investigation into the leak of the draft opinion in Dobbs. I haven't really heard any updates about that investigation. Have you? No, no, I've not seen it. Wouldn't that be something? Maybe they'll get. Uh, oh gosh, here's the. Maybe they get that that Durham guy to investigate this. Oh, we never even talked about the end of the, sus the, 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 the obvious and deeply predictable denouement of the Sussman prosecution. But um, <laughs> we can throw that in at the end. But as, long as, we're on, 
as long as we're on a global war on terrorism guat theme, let's let's pivot to make what? Um, make, make, make what great again? Bon, bonsoir, Monsieur Vladek. Um, bonsoir, Monsieur Guat. <laughs> bonsoir. <laughs> so I find this, I, I find it amusing. It's uh, it's really remarkable that uh, I think in a way you got you got to kind of hand it to the French. It, it appears they're they're operating um, both in terms of detention, acting by, with, and through local entities, and now seemingly uh, just directly acknowledging publicly airstrikes targeting counterterrorism targets. By the way, uh, all this seemingly very worthy, um, but it's just sort of remarkable how little commentary and discussion this occasions. Maybe I'm missing it because I'm not Francophone and I don't know what's going on. Maybe there's all sorts of, uh, you know, protest and, and criticisms. But anyways, uh, around June 16th, the AP reported that uh, in English language sources that the French military had just directly announced that they'd killed approximately 40 uh, people traveling on motorcycles near Niger's border with Burkina Faso uh, in response, working closely with their Nigerian partners with Intel provided by the Nigerians. Uh, this is a sort of unspecified group, at least in the sources I saw unspecified group are responsible for, or linked to a group responsible for a deadly attack on government personnel earlier in the week. And it's all part of this larger, um, continuing instability in the Sahel region. Um, it's not the only overt sort of Guat style activity by the French, uh, back on June 15th, just a little bit previously, I guess the day before they had uh, publicly announced they'd captured a senior Islamic state figure, uh, not, not too far elsewhere in the region near the Mali border. Um, totally unclear, you know, who's got custody of that person. I think he was captured on the Niger side. And I think that following exactly the same model I just described for the United States, I doubt he's in direct formal de jure French custody. I'm sure he's in partner nation custody and I'm sure the French are lending what support and having what involvement they want to have there. So I see some real parallels between the lingering elements of the American global war on terrorism and Leguat, um, but we just don't see a lot of coverage of the latter, at least not in our sources. Wait, you, you, I, I mean, <laughs> who would cover it? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, all right, so there we go. The Guats. Are, 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 you, are you saying that? Are you saying that the that legacy media in the U.S. doesn't do an, uh, a sufficient job of covering some of? Anyway, never mind. Well, I can't believe we missed the chance to refer to this as uh, Guat Part Du. <laughs> guat Guat Shots. Guat Shots Part Du. That's it. That's oh, the that episode title. That is the episode title. Guat Shots <laughs> Part Du. That is that is very good. Or yeah. it's just, you know, nine o'clock at night and I've gotten about four hours of sleep. Yeah. All right. Well, um, <laughs> speaking of, speaking of, of, of me being tired and run down, should we talk about yeah. Donziger for a minute? Yes. Yes. Let's close out with that. Great. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If you're tired and, um, you know, goofy. No, it's all good. Play into it. Um, so, so folks might remember that um, last fall I had briefed and argued a case in the Second Circuit raising this interesting, not really, I mean, Bobby's sort of national security law adjacent, you know, sort of structural con law question. Um, and the question was about whether um, district courts have the power to appoint private special prosecutors to try criminal contempt um, in cases in which the Department of Justice declines to prosecute, right? Usually if DOJ declines to prosecute, that is the end of the matter, as we have learned over and over again with regard to the, the past administration, um, which, by the way, we should at some point, actually, maybe in our next episode, we should talk more about what the January 6th committee has been up to. But um, but the so anyway, in Donziger, the question was basically, you know, is this all constitutional? And so we got the decision from the Second Circuit last, oh, I don't know, Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Um, and we lost, so at, on, at face value, we lost two to one, right? That the Court of Appeals upheld Donziger's conviction, um, et cetera. But there are actually two really important and I think useful things um, that I think came out of it. The first is that the panel actually agreed with us and not the government and not the special prosecutor that court-appointed special prosecutors are inferior executive officers, mm. um, that they're executive officers, not judicial officers, and that they're officers, not employees. 
Um, and the reason why that matters, Bobby, as you know, is because if they're inferior executive officers, then they have to be appointed in a manner that's consistent with the appointments clause. Indeed. Um, this is also right? Morrison-ish. There's a lot of Morrison here. So Morrison versus Olson is the 1987 Supreme Court case upholding the independent counsel statute, um, rejecting an argument that inner branch appointments of prosecutors are unconstitutional. But here's the big difference between that case and this one, Bobby. In Morrison, right, a statute quite expressly authorized the inner branch appointment, the independent counsel statute, right? That was the whole point of the thing. Yeah, yes, indeed. Right. There's no statute here, right? The the source of the district court's power to appoint the special prosecutor is Rule 42 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. Um, and, you know, even though the Federal Rules of Criminal Civil Procedure are law, right, they have the force of law pursuant to the Rules Enabling Act, um, the Appointments Clause says Congress has to provide for, you know, the, uh, the appointment of inferior executive officers. And so, you know, now we have this fascinating question about whether Rule 42 is, you know, is sufficiently specific to satisfy the requirement that Congress authorize these appointments. Um, the majority actually didn't completely disagree with us. They actually said that was a close question. They just thought we hadn't preserved it below, which, as Judge Menashe points out in his dissent, is nonsense. <laughs> we actually got yelled at by the district court for how often we tried to keep raising the appointments clause question. Um, <laughs> But but so I think and, and Judge Menashe's dissent I think does a really good job of explaining why we're right on why if there are executive officers Congress had to specifically authorize the appointment and Congress didn't, which means perhaps we have a certworthy kind of constitutional question. That is a super interesting Fed courtsy civ proy question, and I, I can't help law, yeah. You're you're a sort of a newly minted or perhaps reminted. You'll explain it. Civ uh, pro teacher, eh, Steve. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, um, I had a nice former associate Dean, um, who was, was willing to indulge me. Okay. Um, yeah, seriously. Um, but you know, I, even before the events of the last couple of weeks, I had really wanted a bit of a break from con law. Um, and so I'm really excited about the chance to teach Civ Pro to first year one. So actually I have this weird view and maybe it's wrong. I have a, I have this idea that like, People go into con law with fairly preformed views, right? Whereas I feel like Civ Pro is a class that most first years go into with no idea what the hell we're doing. Um, <laughs> and so, and so there's actually a chance. Yeah. So there's actually a chance for a professor to make a, to make an impact. There must not be a lot of one else who come in with like these passionate eerie opinions and these uh, passionate international shoe commitments. Um, Pinoyer commitments, but you, you'll soon find out. And if you're a, if you're listening, you're an incoming one L at Texas Law. Um, maybe you have a decent chance that Steve will be your CIFRO professor, which would be pretty incredible. Although I got to say, no matter who you get, it's going to be pretty incredible because we got a bunch of great CIFRO professors. Um, well, Steve, that that's um, that case actually sounds like it's got legs, and it's a super interesting issue. Um, have you ever given that case as an exam question? No. No. Uh, well, uh, sounds like a good one. All right. Uh, should we pivot to frivolity? Since you're seeking solace in Civ Pro, can I offer you instead the solace of frivolity in talking about the Mets? Or perhaps can I lure you into some Obi-Wan Kenobi talk? Uh, whichever you prefer. Okay. Well, uh, friends, if you're in it only for the national security law or, or any law talk, thanks for being with us. Uh, so bye. And for those who stuck around, Steve, I've not seen the most recent Obi-Wan, but I'm caught up pretty far along. So if, guys, if you don't want spoilers, tune out. Um, how is your uh, enthusiasm level for this series so far, Steve, relative to say, well, to, to any of the other Star Wars uh, recent products? Um, I liked it more than Boba Fett. Um, and I liked it less than Mandalorian. I, I certainly... I ended up really disliking Boba Fett and was frustrated by it. Yeah. Felt real. Di I felt a, a great previously insufficiently tapped character finally got tapped and they just did a huge disservice and I'll never forgive the fiasco of the back to the future two nonsense. Yep. Um, this so far, at least, and again, I haven't seen the most recent episode. I'm quite liking it. Um, I think we talked a little bit about this. I think uh, the kid playing Princess Leia is fan fantastic and really well cast. And I, I like the way they've written her. Um, I, you know, sometimes it gets a little old with the the angsting of you know Uma McGregor. I wish I wish he 
it's a little painful episode after episode to watch him wallowing in the the low place he reached. But I kind of like the idea that, of course, over that much time living in the desert, he he lost his uh, mojo and didn't know how to find it again for a while. Um, I I think the Anakin stuff's been pretty great. How do you feel about the Darth Vader treatments? It, it, it is to me the best part of the whole thing. Um, and, and without saying, without spoiler alerts, I think, I think it's the, the last episode bears that out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my, my complaint remains, and I don't know how big of a complaint this is that like, I feel like if everything that happened in Obi-Wan is canon, then there are some various lines of dialogue in, you know, a new hope and empire yeah. That now seems sort of implausible. Yeah. I mean, again, I don't, I don't know what I don't know yet, but yeah. right from the beginning, as soon as they fought again, I thought, well, wait, now, one, right. you know, the, the whole like, you know, now, now I am the master, all that business, the, the iconic sort of trash talking at the beginning of the final duel at the Death Star in New Hope seems like it's at least a little off, but I don't know. Maybe they'll try to write it in, before this series is over. Um, how do you feel about Kamal Nanjani being in it? Like having like very visible stars who are, who are of the, I'm going to call this the Kevin Costner type. They play one person, they play themselves. They're, they're <laughs> that guy, <laughs> you know, um, I kind of, I admit, I kind of like it, even though I, I don't like the sort of disruption of the suspension of disbelief that happens when you see someone who's so like, he's not the character, he's him, but man, he's, he's winning. Uh, how do you feel about that? At the end of the day, it's the, the casting decisions are not where I sort of focus my, you know, I, I also, I love him. He's actually friends of, with my sister-in-law and her husband. Oh, um, that's so I'm, I'm biased. Maybe if it was uh, someone else who was just as visible, I'd be less, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think they wrote him well. All right. Any, any other thing? Is there anything else about it that you dislike or that you especially do like? I, I I mean I I love I love almost everything they do. I mean I you know even even the cheesy stuff I like. Um, you know I I love um, the oh gosh I'm forgetting is it Riva who's the Inquisitor? Um, uh, you mean Third Sister? Gosh yeah yeah Third Sisters that was great. And of course I've only just now caught up to the part where like you know he's Obi Wan talks to her from from the wall from the door. Yep. And uh, and then the big reveal that like actually she was a youngling and actually she's in this to try to get. Uh, get her shot at Anakin. That was really cool. I, I, I didn't see that coming. I just thought she was sort of a more uninteresting uh, one-dimensional or two-dimensional badass. And, and actually seeing the more interesting arc was was very neat. Um, yeah. Hey, are you watching Stranger Things? No. All right. Well, listeners, if, anybody's, if anybody's still listening, or should I say listener, whoever you are, the last one still with us here, if you're watching it, Tell me what you think. I'm I'm loving it. It's so good. I can't believe you're not watching it, Steve. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, I have all this free time. I know. You spend it on Mets games. <laughs> all right. Uh, I think we've run the course of this. Uh, anything else to add before we close out? No. I just... You've hit the wall, haven't you? I, I don't know. I, I just... I, like, I... Where do we go from here? That's the question. Look, I I know we've we've had these moments before. I know you're feeling super down right now, and I and I have to imagine that um, a small number of our listeners are feeling really unsettled. Our our legal community listeners, those who are unhappy about how things have gone here, are going to be feeling like, you know, what what are these institutions? What are these what are these yeah. rules? Um, I mean, and, let me put it this way. So, right, I mean, you you are going to have a very large role, a larger role than usual, in our one L orientation in August, right? And as you know, are, by the way, as, well, so right, so trying to drag you into it. So right, so our, our fantastic, you know, dean of students Elizabeth Bangs and I, you know, with your help and and lots of other people's help, are planning this event for the first day. That's like a fireside chat. Like why, why law school? Why now? And you know, I, I've got two months to figure out what I want to say. And and Bobby, I might need those two months. That's fine. Well, now now we'll be happy to talk with you about that. Look, I. I fully understand and appreciate that a lot of people, including some listening to us right now, feel like why waste time talking about law and legal institutions? It's power. Um, if that's how you're feeling, that is all the more reason. Like you, you can't throw up your hands and say like, never mind. 
I'm just going to assume that it's always in all places, all times like that. And we shouldn't even aspire to a more rule bound rule of law way of being. I urge you not to throw in the towel if you're feeling that way. Yeah. And, and by the way, of course, and of course, some of our listeners aren't feeling that way, that there are right. people who feel yeah. you know, rather, rather the opposite. Um, right. But, and I, vindicated. I, yeah. but, I, but I want to speak now to people who are hurting and because I, I want to speak to both. And for those who feel like, you know, this makes me just nihilistic about the whole thing. Um, that's a reason for you to, to fight in the proper sense, fight in the sense of uh, drilling down on how you think it ought to be and making the arguments that you think ought to be made. Learn If you're a law student, becoming the best possible lawyer you can be. If you're a lawyer, becoming a better lawyer than you currently are. Every one of us yep. has room, room to go on this. Um, the worse you're feeling, the more motivation that ought to be for doubling down your efforts. Yep. That, that's, so that's my pitch to you too. Um, and so when you talk and are in dialogue with, with others, whoever that ends up being, um, at orientation, which I hope will happen, and you're, you're trying to explain to students who have I assume this, the same full range of views as the American public is our, at least in Texas law, we get this, this very diverse uh, array of viewpoints. Um, I, I, my hope for, for you and whoever else is on stage with you is that y'all can inspire people to understand that whether you think we're currently in a very rule-bound place or maybe even an increasingly rule-bound place, or you think the opposite, that the, that the wheels are coming off the structure, either way, we need to be able to agree that we'd be best off in a rule of law society, not a power dominated society. And, and to fight for that principle. And to fight for that principle. Yep. I agree. No, no. I, of course I agree. I just, I ask me again next week. I will. Cause we'll, no <laughs> be, back, we'll be back on the air next week, right? Uh, maybe. Um, maybe. All right. Well, he is at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL podcast. Bob, we still have uh, four Supreme Court decisions to go. So, you know, oh goodness. who knows what fresh hell, including, by the way, a war powers case, right? Torres versus Department of Public Safety. So maybe, who maybe knows what fresh hell awaits us. Um, and the Mets have two more with Houston before we play. The, it's our it's our Texas week. We're playing two with the Astros and then three with the Rangers. Astros are looking good once again. The Rangers, yes, they are. not as bad as they could be. Yeah, well, um, all right. Anyway, everybody, listen, stay safe out there. And I mean that in every possible respect. Absolutely. Adios.